Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about closure and banking with Alan Rona. Welcome to the show, Alan. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on in the first episode of the kind of reboot or second season or gap away after some time. So I'm excited to talk to you, especially about your business, Griffin, and also your background and the other projects you've been working on. So do you want to just give us sort of background of where have you been, where are you now? Sure. So I started CircleCI in 2011, started that in Austin, Texas, moved to San Francisco there for about three years, left Circle in 2014. Oh, relevant to the story, along the way, hired an engineer there named David, who will become relevant later. So then I moved back to Austin. David, who's now my co-founder at Griffin, he went on to be an engineer at a company called Standard Treasury, which was doing banking APIs for U.S. banks. That company didn't make it. They got Aqua hired by SVB. Oh, late in that story, David thought that the company decided, well, selling to banks is really hard. And so they said, well, maybe we should become a bank so we can just <laughs> be the bank rather than having to sell the banks. Yeah. And that turned out to be a good idea, but they figured that out too late in the startup's journey. So David still thought that was a good idea. And then he saw Monzo get authorized in 2017. And then David's a dual US-UK citizen, so he moved over to London in 18, 2019, something like that. We had a great time working together at Circle. I knew I wanted to do another startup. I knew I wanted to work with friends, and it seemed like an interesting idea. So uh, I moved from Austin to London in 2020. Wow. Griffin has raised two rounds now, or like about 30 people and something like 13, 14 full-time closure people. Wow. Cool. And so what's the sales pitch for Griffin? What is it? We are building a API-driven bank. So we are a fully regulated, fully licensed, or will become a fully regulated, fully licensed UK bank. Uh, we don't have our license yet, but it's it's, in, it's going. But then we will, everything will be API-driven. So you can make a payment, receive a payment, issue a debit card, and then further down the line, FX and loans, and basically like AWS for financial services. Right. There are a lot of these banking as a service players that are like pure software companies that are partnering with banks. Yeah. And we think there's a lot of advantage in having both the software and the regulatory side all under one roof. For the most part, the pure software companies are constrained by what their partner banks will allow them to do. And if we have our own chief risk officer and our own chief compliance officer who understand the business, understand where we're trying to go, I think there's a lot more synergy there. Yeah. And a bank that lets you make API calls, that sounds attractive to developer types, but is this something that you imagine would be, you would be providing to people directly, or is this something that gets resold or both? Initially, we are targeting only businesses, so primarily fintechs, but then it can start small and then expand out. So initially, it's going to be like any kind of fintech that wants to do like a Revolut or a Square Cash or any of those like digital mobile apps, a prepaid card startup. And then there are other things that kind of get it fall under the same regulatory license that you wouldn't expect, like robo-advisors and wealth management and those kind of things. Interesting. Okay. And then long-term, I'm not sure where, I'm, I'm sure the audience for this is worldwide, so it's hard to pick my example companies, but I'm going to stick with the US and UK because that's where I'm familiar. You know, you always see in the news like, Google and Amazon and Walmart and whoever like want to offer bank accounts. 
And like mm-hmm. Google and Amazon and Walmart will never in a million years become banks, but they need to partner with somebody. And they would much rather partner with a modern technology company than a bank that's 400 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and why the UK you know, instead of the US? You know, you're based in the US originally. What are the differences there? So in the US, there's something like 5,000 banks. In the UK, four or five banks have 90% of the market share. Mm-hmm. So that, And then RBS was one of them. The government had to bail out RBS and acquired it. So then the response to that was to create what's called the New Bank Startup Unit. And so they wanted to create a bunch of new, they call them challenger banks, to take market share from the incumbents. So that's where like Monzo and Adam and Starling and all those come from. Interesting. Yeah. So the UK is a first world country where it's not easy, but it's easier to get a banking license. In the US, there's both state and federal licenses. And if you go state to state, it's very expensive to get your 50th bank license. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds 30 or so people is, is a lot, but also for a bank, that sounds like not a lot at the same time. Yeah, our headcount will have to go up a lot before we're fully live. Makes sense. I find banking interesting personally, but the reason why this is on the Clojure podcast is that you're using Clojure at Griffin. So tell us about what are you doing there with Clojure and, and why even use Clojure for a bank? So, I mean, one reason is because I like it. I like Clojure. <laughs> Not the best reason, but um, yeah, I got into Clojure in 2009. It was 2008. It's pre-10. I'm certain of that. And then I used it at Circle and it worked great. There are actually a surprising number of financial services companies using Clojure. You know, it's a new bank, of course, but then most of the big banks in the UK have are either running it or have tested it. Capital One in the US, I don't know if they're running it, but they at least trialed it. The immutable principles of Clojure work really well for accounting and event-driven systems. So anywhere where you need an event log, anywhere where you have you need an immutable history, Clojure is a good fit for that. We're also using, kind of tied into the Clojure and immutability thing, we're using Kafka as our source of truth. So Clojure plus Kafka fits together really well. You know, so a normal API web ser- ring web server, and then requests come in, they get turned into a ring map, and then they're written directly to Kafka. And then the rest of the system is event sourcing. So a bunch of these little closure transducers that just read a Kafka message and write a Kafka message. And so it's it's kind of microservices y except that they're like forty threads running in one process right now. I mean like we can split them out, but it's well, yeah, let's go through Kafka real quick. So you have a bunch of topics and so it's it's a log, so kind of like a queue, kind of like a core racing channel and each topic has multiple partitions. So then we have we set up a partition key. So like we say, this topic is only messages about users and this topic is only about transactions and whatever. So then the messages are partitioned by a key in the closure map. And then right now we're running 10 partitions per topic. So then each one of these closure transducers is listening to a single partition and it's reading a single message at a time emitting zero to end messages out. You get strict serializability. Everything's linearizable. But then the other thing that's really cool is that because the whole system is are these transducers, you can test everything in memory without writing Kafka at all. No mocks, no nothing. It's just, I have a transducer. So then the test data is a closure vector in, closure vector out. 
So it's really nice. And one thing which is often a, a, a tricky thing to deal with Kafka and event sourcing is what do you do about replaying history or if you made a bug or how to deal with migrations or you know, changing your structure of data? What are your approaches there? Pretty standard things. So I mean, one thing that helps with accounting is that you don't undo mistakes. In a pen and paper ledger, if you make a mistake, you just add a new entry at the end. So the accountants were immutable you know, 500 years before closure was. <laughs> On the Kafka side, we can version the messages. So just say transaction V1, transaction V2, and you just leave the old data there. We can do migrations. We haven't needed to yet, but that would be something like scan over an entire topic and do a closure map writing into a new topic. Makes sense. Another thing I saw when I was looking at Griffin's GitHub repos that are public was one called Rules Closure, which is related to Bazel. So could you tell us what is it, why have you built it, how are you using it? I'm going into what is Bazel and not why Bazel. Why is just test speed. I wrote Circle, I use Circle, but running all tests on every commit is not scalable. Basically looking for a way to speed up CI time. How does Bazel do that? Let's talk about what it is. Bazel is an evolution of make. So I have this output target that I want to build. Like a, Originally, it was a C binary, and it depends on these source files. So then you'd say, my target depends on source files A and B. And then if either of them change, we build the output. One of the frequent failure modes that Google found was that your dependencies don't have to be correct. So in reality, your target could actually depend on files A, B, and C, but you forgot to write down C. And so there's an implicit dependency there that you know, maybe it only worked because most of the time C got built by some other target. And so if you ran things out of order or whatever, you would get an inconsistent build. So one of the things that Bazel does, it has a sandbox. While you're running a target, you're not allowed to access any source file in your tree that wasn't declared. So this makes it much more correct which then means that you can reliably cache things. So Bazel can cache intermediate build steps, and it can also cache test results. So in Bazel, a test is just a binary that you run that returns a 0 or 1 exit code. So then you can say, well, the test for Griffin foo-test.clj depends on these files. None of the files have changed, so I can just reuse the cache test result and return success. It's still a work in progress. One more thing that's very cool about it. So Bazel is written in Java and the caching and, oh, and it also supports remote execution. So you can set up a, like a farm of workers and then say, run this whole build and farm out uh, test runs to remote workers and then also use the cache. So that's the theory. Still trying to make it work with Clojure. The challenge is making Clojure's AOT process is different from how Bazel thinks about things. So making it both making the closure compilation and testing both fast and correct has been challenging. I've been trying to do AOT our third-party dependencies, and that is, I found a, a surprising number of open source libraries that don't compile out of the box. Yep. And so the dependency tracking is not just at the level of a like a project. You're talking about tracking to a test file depends on these other source files. Yes. So a normal Bazel rule, you would say, this output target depends on these source files. I wrote a little closure program that uses tools namespace to parse the dependency graph and build Bazel targets. You know, so then you can just say, here's a closure test that is just the you know 
foo underscore test dot clj. And then because of the other generated rules, it knows all of the source files to pull out. And so then it will only rerun that test if one of the directly dependent source files has changed. Or sorry, transitive dependencies, not direct. Sounds like that would also solve a problem sometimes that comes up in Clojure apps. Not that often, but I've written this occasionally where you don't have a require in place for something, but it happens to work mm-hmm. because it's been required somewhere else. And you know, it works fine until, until you get to production where, where the requires are in a different order or. Yes. This catches those very, very quickly. I'm only parsing the, the NS form. And so if there's a, a require or load further down the file, that dependency won't get added to the Bazel rule. And then it will, Bazel won't allow you to access those files. And this is just for closure. Currently, so it's a multi-language build tool. So it was originally written for C and Java, and it has pretty good support for JavaScript and Docker containers, actually. So rules closure is just the plugin to Bazel to compile closure, and then the goal is to use it for our front-end closure script and JavaScript, and actually Docker containers. And okay, so you're planning to support closure scripts at some point in the future? Yeah. Cool. And this is an open-source project. If there's someone else who's, is this kind of at the point where you're looking for help or is this still just a kind of you know noodling on the problem kind of stage or? I'm about 90% done with the noodling. So I'm not the first person to try to do closure rules in Bazel. There are at least two other projects out there and they're listed in um, in the readme for, for mine. I've learned a surprising amount about AOT compilation and jar files and class loaders in the last few weeks. So there's another closure plugin for Bazel. I don't remember the guy's name, sorry. But he's using the Java annotation plugin provider thing to do closure compilation. And it works. And the nice thing about it is that you don't have to extend Bazel at all because it's using pure Java source files to compile closure. So then there's no extension, there's no library, there's no plugin, just Java. It's a very clever approach. And it works, except it breaks uh, the last modified time. So Bazel is very into reproducible builds. So the, the goal here is today you make a build, uh, you deploy it to production, and then two months later, go to your source tree, check out the same SHA and build it, and then ideally get an artifact with the same SHA. Closure can't do that. Okay, so what Bazel does by default is it sets the last modified timestamp of every file in the jar to zero because timestamps are one of the main sources of non-determinism when you rebuild. If you have a Git tree with the same SHA, like why don't you get an output? And timestamps are the number one culprit. So Bazel sets the last modified time of all the files in the jar to zero. That doesn't work with AOT closure because closure tries to, in the um, class loader or in rt.java, it looks for the .clj file and it looks for the .class file. And if both are present, it loads the newer one. So this AOT processor thing uses Bazel's default rules. Bazel happily compiles a jar, sets the last modified time to zero. If you have any dependency in your class path with the same name, but with a different last modified time. Right. And you wouldn't want to go reset the modified times of any of your... Yeah. That probably works fine for Uber jars. One of the other problems I've been struggling with is... uh, So Bazel defines a test as a binary that can only... So basically, you build up your Java library, and then you build up a shell script that says, 
call Java with these jars and then run, you know, close your main, close your test, my test namespace. And so that's all very clean and it's all very correct because you can guarantee that no other test run before or after you is interfering with your, your build, right? And you can't load mocks out of order or whatever. Like Ruby always has that problem. Yeah. So it's very clean and it's very correct, but then that means that you're starting a closure process for every test namespace. And so then I was trying to speed that up by AOTing everything because I didn't want to, I didn't want to keep paying the startup time. You know, if you have hundreds of tests and it takes 10 seconds or whatever, 30 seconds to load up a big namespace, that takes too long. And, and long-term, this will also be able to track tests between CI runs. Yeah. So the, the cache is network attached. And so you can just say, and you know, the cache is just SHA-1, so it doesn't care, you know. If I have a binary with this SHA, what's the test result? That's immutable. In practice, I think people use like Redis and keep a month's worth of history and because it expires. Uh, you, Redis has nice cache key expire, expiration. Like if this hasn't been accessed in a month, you can throw it away. But yeah, the cache is network attached, so then you can save it between developer machines and between CI. And So that would really give you pretty quick tests then. Yeah, that's the goal. Because you could yeah, be just down to cool. Well, that is is very exciting, especially, I imagine, for larger projects that have a lot of files and a lot of tests. This would be very valuable. Another project that you're working on is Spectrum. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what is Spectrum? What is it goals? You know, where is it now? It's an attempt at statically typing Clojure. So it actually predates Clojure spec. I started working on it like a couple of weekends before Rich announced spec, and then I changed (laughs) the name. (laughs) It's kind of dormant right now, mostly because I had uh, uh, several kids and a startup and an intercontinental move. The where it was, so I haven't touched it in about six months. But where it was at the last time I, was, I touched it was uh, I was building a an interpreter for a closure like language. So at the end of the day, what you want to do is you want to know that your programs are correct. And I guess I don't care too much about static typing versus dynamic typing, like from a purity standpoint, I just want to know, is it safe to deploy this code? So where I got to at the end was, well, I have this closure source file and it has annotations and you can run generators, like you have spec and you can run generators and that works decently well, but there are a couple of weaknesses. One, you're depending on randomness and two, you're depending on the quality of your generator. So the idea I had was, well, if I take the closure source file and I compile it into a language that works on types, then I can just run the type program. So that's kind of weird. So let's take an example like closure map. So we you know with map you take a function and a collection, and then it tries to seek the collection, and then you know calls chunk first and count and calls f and Closure source files, the compiler runs and it turns a source file into a function that takes, uh, so let's say we're mapping increment over a range of integers or mapping ink over a range of integers. So the closure compiler creates, reads the source file and creates a function that takes an instance of an integer and returns a collection. Uh, you run the function and ink return is number to number, an instance of a number to an instance of a number. Well, I can also make a compiler that takes that same source file and returns a function that takes takes a class integer and returns class integer. 
and then you don't have to do the actual runtime operations, right? Because so basically, I've turned ink from like rather than actually doing the work of increments, mm-hmm. I can return yep. a function that takes a class and just returns a class. Right. And then I can run the same compiler on map, and then I can pass that typed ink function to my typed map and say, okay, if I pass my typed ink and a typed collection, do I get collection of class integer and does that match the spec? The way you avoid like running the whole program is like you treat recur differently. Basically, you do any runtime operations. So in theory, it's O of 1 with the size of the source tree and not O of N with the algorithm. Right. That's the theory. You're kind of like hollowing out the insides of all the functions and just taking and returning types. Yes. And then comparing those to the declared annotations. And then on things like if if statements opaque function call and it's like well that could return that could return truthy or nil and so then you have to branch there then you have two different evaluation results it's like well that function could return truthy or return nil so now you return two environments one where it did return truthy and one where it did return nil and then you can run the whole function and so then you're not relying on generators and you're guaranteed to get good coverage and how do you go bridging between spec which is not sort of type system it doesn't give you quite that well defined necessarily is is what you're talking about there in terms of the specs that people might write how do you get that into a useful language for your type checking i was defining my own types well i was using spec but then also defining my own for the uh the higher order things so like i just define a new spec type for function of int to int and so your your code understands spec call of and all the different spec yeah things and can turn them Right. Yeah, that was actually one of the more challenging parts is that there are dealing with converting between the multiple type systems because there's the Java type system and then there's the closure predicates and then the spec regexes and then my higher order stuff. So that, that was where it got gnarly. Yeah. One thing I wanted to circle back to on Griffin that I noticed that was kind of doesn't sound very unique, but maybe is in your space is that your API docs are public. And that sounds like kind of like a, well, obviously the API docs are are public, but I was looking at different vendors recently for something I was working on and they were sort of an enterprisey kind of problem. And some of the people we were talking to, you had to sign up for, you know, go on a sales call just to get access to the API docs, or it might be a web page or just a PDF or a Word document as kind of like that's the level of so to see, you know, like a bank just publishing out in the open, here's here's the function calls, here's here's what you do. Yep. Uh yeah. Can you talk about like how Griffin thinks about that kind of stuff versus a a four hundred year old bank and I mean we're we're just doing what we like. So like I, I hate getting on sales calls, I hate signing NDAs. Give me the API docs, give me the pricing. It's just how I want to be treated as a SaaS customer. So that's how we're trying to treat our customers. Uh, but yeah, you're right that the problem is completely endemic to financial services. I sometimes joke with people that if we did everything else exactly the same as everyone else, except our API docs and pricing were public, we would win. Is there a good reason for why it's private? Like, why wouldn't you make it public? Some companies are embarrassed by it. We've we've definitely seen vendors <laughs> who've told us like, yeah, we're sorry, we know we're we're hiring a technical writer. Others are just 
I think they were sales-driven businesses before the modern SaaS developer thing became widespread. You could make a case on like, why is pricing hidden? Because then sure. you know, the, the sales guy wants to negotiate with you. But even then, you can put the public rate card out and say, like, not that we do this, I'm not suggesting that we do, but you could put out a public card and then negotiate for better deals on enterprise. Gotcha. Another cool thing or interesting thing I noticed in your API is that you're using namespaced keywords in your public responses, if I'm reading this correctly. What's your thinking behind that API design? So what happened there is that our internal V00 or whatever was uh, returning Eden for our ClojureScript's web app or ClojureScript front end. You realize, oh, wait, everyone else is going to be using JSON. So then we have to build the JSON API. That is probably an information. We'll probably need to fix that. The API is still under revision. Gotcha. Is there anything tricky about using closure in a banking context? Like sometimes there's, I've heard of like vulnerability scanning being just a, like a thing you have to have, like a Sona cube or something just for compliance reasons. Is there something like that? Not really. I mean, from an InfoSec perspective, closure is not any different from Scala or Java or so yeah, we do. We will need a vulnerability scanner, but using jars, so like the normal Maven tools, work on that just fine. Right. The technology sophistication is not what you would expect. The regulators tell us like, don't get hacked and don't have downtime, and they don't really <laughs> care what we do as long as you know we don't get hacked and don't have downtime and we're not harming customers. So most of the compliance processes are really more around process and audibility. So it's kind of like making sure that every deployed master was went through CI and had the vulnerability scanner and had code review and cool. So we've talked about Griffin and you've said you need to ramp up with some more people. So are you hiring currently? Yes, we are hiring all engineering roles, front end, back end, infrastructure. And we're hiring we are remote, but yeah, so it, Definitely in the UK, and then there are a handful of countries in the EU. The main reason we're not hiring in like everywhere is each extra country, like stock options are different. So then it's like legal and paperwork and stuff. We post in Clojure and Slack very frequently, and that has the current list of countries that we're hiring in. Clojure scripts, uh, JavaScript, designers, infrastructure, which is AWS and Terraform, that kind of stuff. Well, there's plenty of uh, Clojure people in the EU and the UK. So yeah, check out Griffin for a early stage. Trying to get this license. Is that like five years off or a month off? Oh know? no. It's if all goes to plan we'll enter mobilization in April twenty twenty two and then fully live at the end of twenty twenty two. So in the UK mobilization is kind of like your bank with training wheels and that you're legally a bank, you can call yourself a bank, but then there's a limit on customer funds that you can hold until there are a couple steps there. The auditors have to sign off on the technology platform and the company's internal like business processes and controls and policies. And then uh, the regulators say, they look at the business model and they say, okay, you know, based on your forecasted revenue and forecasted customers, we think you need to hold 10 million pounds in regulatory capital. So then mobilization is kind of the training wheels period where we can go through live systems tests and get the bugs worked out on everything and then have time to raise capital. And so if someone was wanting to build a, a fintech company, could they contact you now or soon or what's 
Yeah, when, when would they? Yeah, so we're we're building a sandbox now, you know, which like has the APIs and kind of the way we think things will work when we are live. But it's kind of like the Stripe sandbox if you've ever used that. So basically, we're building that now, and then at some point in the future, we'll flip the switch, and that will actually move real money. Cool. Is there anyone else you'd like to thank or mention? Since we were talking about Basil for so long, I feel like I should thank the two projects that I was started at looking at, but I don't remember the names. Sorry. But anyway, they're on the uh, they're listed on the GitHub. Great. I will include links to them in the show notes. Well, thank you for coming on and talking to me, and I will be watching Griffin with keen interest. Great. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me.